Go ahead and start. Um, cough. Cough. My soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word. My eyes fail from searching your word, saying, When will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin spoke. Yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute you? Proud have dug pits for me, not according to your law. All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. They almost made an end of me, but I did not forsake your precepts. Revive me according to your loving kindness that I may keep the testimony of your mouth. Okay. I just had to send him a note. So we have half is done. Next week is Lamed. And, okay, we had a little problem. The uh, live stream came on as it should, but it wasn't marked as uh, public. And so uh, there may be a little bit of problem at the beginning of the live stream for people that watch later. And uh, we'll try to get that cut off of there. I'm not sure how to do that. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, we have uh, Jill. Her left knee and kneecap really hurt. She's a nice lady up in Charlotte, North Carolina. She emailed me today, and she's just in some real agony. And uh, Claudia, I have not heard back from Claudia, but uh, she had terrible sciatica this past week. And uh, uh, I sent her an email just now to find out about her. But we want to keep both of them in prayer. And then before we pray, we'll read uh, this day in Christian history, March 18th. Why would intelligent, popular, and athletically gifted young men disdain lucrative careers and choose to be missionaries? In the 1880s, seven prominent Cambridge students made an impact not only on England, but also on the world. Stanley Smith, Montague Beauchamp, Dixon Host, William Castles, Cecil Polhill Turner, Arthur Polhill Turner, and C.T. Studd became known to the world as the Cambridge Seven. In 1873, Stanley Smith, son of a prominent London surgeon, had gone to a D.L. Moody crusade and put his faith in Christ, but did not live for him. Once he arrived at Cambridge, rowing became the most important thing in his life. Montague Beauchamp, Smith's best friend from prep school and fellow member of the rowing team, was a nominal Christian too. Under the influence of a mutual Christian friend, Smith rededicated his life to God in 1880. God had raised the first member of the Cambridge Seven. Beauchamp, however, remained uninterested in his friend's change of heart. <coughs> Excuse me. After Smith and his friend, I can't pronounce his first name, Kiniston, I guess, Stud, committed to pray together 15 minutes every day for their friend Beauchamp, their prayers were answered in 1881 when Beauchamp announced that he had finally yielded all to Christ. Dixon Host was the brother of Cambridge student William Host, a committed Christian who was on the rowing team with Smith and Beauchamp. William prayed for and shared his faith continually with Dixon, who eventually attended a D.L. Moody rally where he gave his life to Christ. Dixon, who at 21 was already a commissioned officer in the British Army, returned to his post professing faith in Jesus. William Castles, also on the rowing team, was a quiet young man studying to become a minister. After Stanley Smith gave his life to Christ, he became good friends with Castles. They frequently prayed together that they would be a Christian influence on the rowing team, of which Smith was now the popular captain. Arthur Pohill Turner also found Jesus at Moody at a Moody crusade while at 
Cambridge. Arthur then persuaded his brother Cecil, who was a commissioned officer in the British Army, to go to a moody crusade in London. Cecil was interested in Christianity, but thought it would mean giving up his promising military career, which he was unwilling to do. Finally, in 1884, he gave his life completely to Christ after a year-long spiritual struggle. Charles C.T. Studd was the younger brother of Kiniston Studd, their father a millionaire, was converted at a Moody rally in 1877. Boy, Moody was just all over the place. He had devoted the remaining two years of his life to spreading the gospel. All three of his sons were converted through his efforts. At Cambridge, C.T. Studd was the popular captain of the cricket team, receiving worldwide recognition as the greatest cricket player of all time. With his fame and success, C.T. drifted far from Christ for a few years. In 1883, his world was shaken when his brother George was sick. Faced with his own mortality and eternity, cricket began to look shallow to him. C.T. gave himself completely over to Christ and immediately began using his influence to reach others. Independently, each of these young men began seeking how God could use his life. Beauchamp was the first to learn of the Chiland Inland Mission, and through a series of events and common connections, all seven men decided to go together to China. Each of them was accepted as a CIM missionary before they sailed the Cambridge Seven toured the campuses of England and Scotland, speaking nightly to packed auditoriums. Hundreds came to Christ through their meetings, bringing revival to England. At their farewell service in London, 3,500 gathered to say goodbye. On March 18, 1885, the Cambridge Seven arrived in China, where they served for many years, some until their deaths. Why do you think these seven successful, prominent, well-to-do students went to China as missionaries? Have you ever considered whether God might want you to go to those who have never heard the good news of salvation? There are wonderful mission opportunities for all ages, from short-term ministries to career possibilities. And Romans 15:20, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. And as I was uh, uh, sitting here earlier doing some work, I thought of Ray and Jess Willett, who are doing exactly that. They're going where no person has gone before. So, uh, I mean, they're going out into the uh, real, the real jungles of Papua New Guinea. So, uh, anyway, uh, they're doing that. And then, of course, we've got all the other missionaries that we know personally or that uh, we help through the church here. And they're all doing their service. And uh, so, it's wonderful that we have the opportunity to support them if people are willing to support them. Um, having said that, we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to meet here and to study your word and to hear about things like we just heard about with the Cambridge Seven and uh, also to lift up our missionaries that we support here and the churches over in uh, Uganda and Kenya that we also uh, are so fond of and such wonderful people that are doing great things in their community. We would ask that you would bless them and just bring joy into the hearts of all of them. We've got Joel and Missy who are pilot trainers, and uh, we would pray that they would be uh, just a great influence on the younger pilots that are learning to fly for missions, and if your hand would just be upon all of these people, Lord, and just bless them in their hearts and bless them in their souls, and we would pray that people would be prompted to help their ministries, and so that they could continue doing what they're doing without the worry of financial stress. And Lord, uh, we just once again pray for this class, and we ask that you would uh, uh, 
help us to handle the word properly and bring out a word that is understandable and and uh, will glorify you. And then we pray for the people that are also sick and that have needs and that uh, you would help meet those needs and help them uh, with their sickness. And if it's something that you are going to leave with them, that they would understand why they are going through those things and that they would feel your hand of comfort through them. Lord, we pray these things that you'll be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, whoops, my glasses fell right off my head. Let's see here. I got an email earlier this week, and uh, this is just one cult, but there are lots of them out there. And uh, this person, um, she emailed me and she asked about um, uh, how do I help somebody that's in the cult of King James Onlyism? And, uh, you know, I've thought about this a lot over the years because I've seen a lot of people in a lot of cults. I mean, you get into people that are in certain churches that are obviously cultic in nature. And uh, I thought I'd read this to you before we get into Ephesians. Um, this is just about the King James Version, but you could apply the precept to pretty much any cult. They said, my experience is that anyone who is in a cult and really accepts the premise of it will never respond to arguments. Doesn't matter what you say to them, they are not going to listen. Um, this is known as cognitive dissonance, and we do it in our own minds over certain things that we are uh, familiar with or that we believe, and we have to be careful to. It's cognitive dissonance is where you hear something that is contrary to what you believe. You already believe in evolution, for example. It doesn't matter what somebody says to you. You're going to shut out any argument that doesn't teach evolution. That's cognitive dissonance. It, it, you, well, I'll continue reading. <laughs> we will shut out anything that conflicts with our world view even if it's the only reasonable explanation. The theory of evolution is not reasonable, and for several reasons, but one of the reasons uh, is obviously because it's still called a theory. Uh, if it was the truth of evolution, they would no longer call it the theory of evolution. They would say the evolutionary model, but it's not true. Okay, so um, having said that, for every argument against King James Version, they will make up a lie in their minds. The King James Version does not reflect the Hebrew. Answer, the original is wrong. Only the King James Version is inspired. And I've seen people do that all the time. The Hebrew and the Greek are not inspired. The King James Version is. Okay, I, I've heard that many, many times. Okay, the King James Version says XXX, but that is not correct. Science has shown that that cannot be. Answer, God did a miracle and supernaturally caused it to happen, or the science is wrong. Okay, I've heard those many times, okay, and so on. No matter what is presented, and once again, this is just picking on the King James Version because she asked the question, but you can apply this to any cult, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, whatever. No matter what is presented, they will deny the truth. I personally have seen it a thousand times. I've seen it with the Jehovah's Witnesses. I've seen it with the Mormons. I've seen it with King James Onlyism. It doesn't matter what you present. Uh, Mormons, here's an example. Mormonism uh, says that the uh, Mormons came to America, or the Hebrews came to America, and America was where they were, and they go through all of the things that support that. And they've proved through DNA that it is not true. Uh, they talk about, you know, the swords in the Bible, and then they say that they came here, and uh, there were no swords in America at the time. They were an unknown commodity until they were brought in by, I believe, the Spaniards, etc. So archaeology disproves it, uh, DNA disproves it, and lots of other things. So it's just a couple of things about Mormonism, and it, they will shut it out. Cognitive dissonance, that is not true, even though it's as obvious as nose on your face. Okay, 
Um, so I went on, I compiled a list of hundreds and hundreds of errors in the King James Version. Every time I type anything, I check the King James Version against the original just for the fun of it, okay? And I gave her the link, and it's, you know, it's pages long. It's many, many, many pages long. It's a book by now. Anyway, some of them are translational. Some of them are scientific. Some are actual contradictions within the text. They're all based on the original, Hebrew or Greek. When shown to a King James-only person, they may call me a bunch of names, but they are unwilling to simply check. They will not check that list. The first sentence is wrong in the Bible. The King James Version says, heaven, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. However, the Hebrew word is plural, heavens. But then they translate the exact same phrase elsewhere as heaven, sometimes heaven, sometimes heavens. Hashemayim, then they say the singular or the plural. It's very inconsistent translation. The very first sentence of the Bible is translated wrong. The opening sentence of many books and epistles are wrong. I, I could go through 20 books in the King James Version where the very first sentence of that book is wrong. Okay, it is a sloppy translation. In the book of 2 Peter, almost every single verse has an error. Now, I've said here, and I'm fair about this, right now we're in a part of Deuteronomy where I can tell that they've changed the translator. Okay. You can, the, it's a committee. Right. You're going to do this book, you're going to do this book, you're going to do these verses of this book. I can tell right now the part that I am, am doing for sermons has a different translator than three chapters ago. Because three chapters ago, every verse had an error in it. It was unbelievable. Right now, I have to really struggle to find something that is an actual error, okay? So I can tell. You can tell when you're dealing with somebody that was competent and when somebody isn't. But in the book of 2 Peter, almost every single verse has an error. In Hebrews 9.23, the word patterns is used. And it says exactly the opposite of what Exodus 25.9 says. It is an actual tra uh, contradiction in translation. They use the word pattern in Exodus, and then they refer to it in Hebrews, and it says exactly the opposite thing. So it's, it's an actual contradiction, not only a translational error, but an internal error as well. But to them, that doesn't matter. The original, here's my recommendation for that particular one. The original preface to the King James Version, I cited the link to her, um, that preface actually dispels every lie that the King James only people claim. If you read it, and it's a very hard read, you've all heard me read it to you before, it argues against every single thing that they claim. I'm not sure how to help except to say that people in cults do not want to know the truth. If they did, they would not be in a cult. People get themselves into things because they want to be controlled. They want bondage. Those people went down to, it's true, my mom's squinching her face and saying, uh, uh, I don't agree with that. But I'm telling you, if somebody is in a cult and they don't want to be in a cult, they will come out of it. Now, once again, I went, when I first came to the Lord, and uh, when I was 36 years old, I went to the, King, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. I'd never seen anybody open a Bible in a church in my life. And I saw them do it, and I thought, oh, they must be a good church. And by the time I had been there for three months, I realized, because I'd read the Bible at least 12 times by then, I realized that they were a cult, and I wanted to get out of there. But the people that are there are either not willing to check, or they want to be in that bondage. They don't want to check. They just want somebody to tell them what to do with their life. And that's the way it is. And so my answer to people that know that somebody is in a cult is to pray for them. Don't try to argue with them, because you're not going to argue them out of anything. You're only going to make them double down in their beliefs. That's all that's going to happen. 
if you can try to present them reason and they don't accept it, you're not going to change their mind. That's, that is the fact of the matter. People that don't want to know will not, they will shut you out. So I don't know. Just like Go ahead. What's that? Oh, yeah, they prayed. That's, that's, and that's what got me thinking about that more than anything while I was reading that is that is the thing that we need to do over everything. Um, you know, sometimes we pray for people that are sick and it seems like nothing happens. And so you think, well, my prayers must not be any good. That's not the case. The Lord has a reason why people get sick and they continue being sick. There is a reason for that. The Lord wants them to learn something. He wants them to be out of a certain circle. I don't know what the reason is, but the Lord has a reason. If he wants that person healed based on your prayers, he is going to heal that person. Okay, there is no doubt in my mind that that is the case. Paul would not say pray for each other if prayers were ineffective. So that's just my, that's, uh, you know, more than anything, that's my word of comfort to somebody that knows somebody in a cult, is that you have to accept that they are and that you are not the one that's responsible for getting them out of it. You give them your logic, don't argue with them over it because you're going to just make them double down, but your comfort is that it is not your fault and you do your part and that's all you can do, okay? I don't know if that's comforting or not, but that's the intent there. Okay, um, we'll go on now. We're in Ephesians chapter 1, and we're in verse 6, but you start where you want, maybe 3 or something. 3. Okay, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Okay, this one says a little different, not much. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Okay, um, before we go on, I'd like to welcome my wife to the Bible study. It's good to have you here. I'm just picking on her. I know the traffic was insane leaving the island. It, she probably left an hour ago, and she's just getting here. Uh, normally, if it was summertime, I would belittle her and, and mock her. I'm kidding. But anyway, um, uh, it, it's good to have you here. Was the traffic bad? It was, wasn't it? Oh, she said no. She just came late. Okay, well, then you're in trouble when we get home. All right. Um, <laughs> We'll go on and, uh, oh, you know what, before I uh, analyze this verse, I will tell you, if you know who Michael W. Smith is, he's a Christian singer, he does some good songs, and there's some, you know, I, I'm, I have no idea what his theology is, okay? He's a singer. All right, I don't care if he sings at Joel Olstein's church or if he sings at a Baptist church. It doesn't make any difference to me. If the song is Christ-centered, I will listen to it, okay? One of the songs that he sang is based on this verse, Ephesians 1, 6, and it is marvelous. It's one of my very favorite songs. It's called To the Praise of His Glorious Grace. Okay. It is a marvelous, beautiful song. So uh, go type in uh, Michael W. Smith, To the Praise of His Glorious Grace. And I know that you, I played it in church here a couple times before you took over the music and everybody loved it. Everybody loved it. So there you go. Once again, I don't care about his theology. I don't care about where he went to high school. That kind of stuff doesn't interest me. If it's a nice song, I'm going to listen to it. People, you know, they, there's something called, before I even get into this again, there's something called the source fallacy. They will say, you shouldn't listen to that because that person is not a Christian, or it doesn't matter. You know, it, it, people will listen to a concert by 
we'll say uh, Bach, or they'll listen to a concert by Brahms, or some Christian in the past that wrote beautiful Christian things. And not one of the people that sings that nowadays is a Christian. They're just opera singers that are hired, and they may even be anti-Christian. And then you'll have things that are written by people that weren't Christians that are sung by Christians that are very uplifting. And you'll listen to that. Don't get into source fallacies. Take something for what it is and leave all the other stuff behind. So I'm just saying that because otherwise somebody will email me and tell me that Michael W. Smith is, like I said, he goes to David Jeremiah's church or something. What? Yeah, he's, yeah, some bad thing. I, it doesn't matter. If the song is nice, I will listen to it. Um, okay. All his music. I don't have that song. It's a beautiful song. Listen to it. Okay, so here we go. One six. I'll read it one more time because it's just so wonderful. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. This verse is, again, a continuation of the same thought from last week. It is a common, it is a comment on the predestination and election, which was referred to in the preceding words. Taken together, they read, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The words, to the praise of the glory of his grace, are a Hebraism. That means that they're based on the Hebrew thought, okay? They bear the same meaning as to his glorious grace. And so Paul is indicating that the praises are due because of the process of predestination and election which have been laid out in the stream of time and in which those who participate should be forever grateful. Everybody got that? God did these things for us. And so he's saying to the praise of his glorious grace, God, who did this for us in the beloved. It should be something that we'll be grateful forever. Uh, Such praises are made because of his glorious grace. His grace revealed in this redemptive process is the very basis of our gratitude toward God. To see this further, we can note that the first in Ephesians, we can note that first in Ephesians 1.7, the riches of his grace is mentioned. Afterward, in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, the focus is on the glory. First, it mentions that he is the father of glory, and then it speaks of the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This connection between God's glory and his grace is seen in a marvelous way in Exodus 33, when Moses spoke to the Lord. That's in Exodus 33, and let me read this to you. Wonderful passage. Place up here by me. What's that? If you're going to read that, he said there's a place up here by me. Yes. That's it. 33. Hang on. It's going to take me a second to get there because I don't want to get my pages all over. 33. And I'm going to take you to verse 18. Then he said, please show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. We'll finish the passage just because it's so marvelous. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by, just what Burke said, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but 
my face shall not be seen. Okay, wonderful. In this, we find the, that the grace of God isn't just a favor that is granted by him. Rather, it is one of his very attributes and a part of his divine nature. He is gracious just as he is love. Vincent's Word Studies rightly states that in praising God for what he does, we learn to praise him for what he is. We praise God because of his grace bestowed upon us, and in this we understand that we praise him because he is gracious in his very being. Nothing is separate from God in his attributes. He is mercy because he is merciful. He is grace because he is gracious. He is love. He is loving because he is love. Okay? He is holy. He is, uh, he is let me think of, uh, he's holy, gracious, merciful. He's truthful. He is the truth, etc. He is jealous. Okay? That's one of his attributes. He says, my name is jealous. Okay? I'm a jealous God because my name, and my name is jealous. Okay? The word in Hebrew. Anyway, these are his, they, they define who he is. It, they define his being. And it's, once again, you want to remember that God does not get graceful. He does not get merciful. He is merciful. The problem is not in God. The problem is in us in relation to God. Okay? So when you think of God loving, he does not get loving. Like, I'm going to start loving Adolf Hitler because he's turned around and stopped killing Jews. It doesn't work that way. He is love. He is going to love no matter what happens, but we move ourselves to the opposite side of him. God doesn't change. He's like a fixed pillar, and I am currently on God's good side. He is love, and I'm receiving his love. I've now moved to his bad side, and God cannot demonstrate that love towards me. His love doesn't change. It's me changing in relation to him. We'll show you this really quickly just so you can see this. Is we've got uh, all these different attributes. We've got grace. And we've got mercy. I should probably put that somewhere else, but we'll put it right here next to it. And he is holy. Okay. He is, uh, let's see here. He is love. He is truth. All right. He is righteous. We'll just stick with these. This is enough of them. He is righteous, E-O-U-S, and he is just. We'll just say, we'll leave those in there. Okay. You got a problem. God isn't going to change. He is all of those things. Okay, but there's a tension between those things. God is gracious, and he wants to bestow grace on us, but he cannot because we have separated ourselves from him. He is just, and he must judge our sins. If he doesn't, then he's not just, but he is just, and therefore he must judge our sins. He's righteous. He cannot show us his mercy because we have done something to deserve his condemnation, his wrath, okay? So he is righteous. He is truth. He cannot lie that, and do something. He cannot do something against his truthful nature in order to show an exception to you or to me. He is loving, and he wants to display these positive attributes to us, but he cannot because he is holy. He is set apart from us, and we have violated his justice and his righteousness. These are just some of them, but what's happened now is you've got attention that is brought in to bear on these attributes of God. They are pulling away from each other, and he cannot change one of his attributes to make an exception for us. So how do these things get reconciled in God? 
It's exactly, that's right. It's exactly what he is talking about right here. He has reconciled all of them through Jesus Christ. Everything is reconciled through the cross. God is just and he must judge us for our sins or he's not just. What does he do? He judges our sins in Jesus Christ. God is righteous. He must show that righteousness against our transgressions, and yet he can do it through the cross of Jesus Christ. He is holy, he is separate from us, and he cannot come near to us because of our sins, but because of Jesus Christ's cross, he can now have fellowship with us. He is loving, but he cannot, we are on the bad side of him because of that, but if we accept what he has done in God, he can now pour out his love on us. He can direct it towards us, that infinite love of his. All of these things can be displayed in him, by him, in us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. The tension is removed. And this shows you, we, we can know these things out here without ever knowing anything personally about God. We can know this because we have in every society on earth standards of justice. They may be different, but we have standards of justice. Almost every culture at one time or another has had a law against adultery. Almost every culture on the earth has had a law against murder. So, okay, these things tell us that there is a standard of justice. We may have erred from it, but we know that there's a standard of justice that is beyond ourselves. We know this because of perceiving it in the world. And because we are created, we don't believe in evolution here, we believe in creation, and because we were created, we cannot possess any of these things that God does not possess. There's nothing that God can create that doesn't reflect a part of who he is, okay? And so if we know that something is holy or something is not holy, that we must by default know that there is a standard of holiness, an ultimate standard of holiness, okay? All of these things exist in God. We know that. And the problem is that we can know without ever picking up the Bible, we can know that we are not right with God and we cannot resolve that tension. It is impossible. We can know that if we think it through. Most people will never think that kind of thing through, but we can know that that is true, okay? Uh, Aristotle, for example, knew these things. He figured these things out, and other Greek philosophers built upon those things. He, they understood the nature of God, but they didn't know the resolution to those problems because they didn't know Jesus Christ. They weren't a part of the Hebrew society. They didn't know about atonement. They had their own ideas about atonement, but they were imperfect, just as all of the religions of the world are. They may have something that bears on the nature of God, but it is imperfect, and it cannot resolve this, okay? Now, you could say, well, I can resolve it through uh, sacrificing a young virgin, and that's why, you know, the Mayans might have taken girls up on top of their pyramids and sacrificed a young virgin, because that's a sinless person, and we are going to now uh, get rid of our sins by sacrificing her. The problem is they don't realize that that young virgin has inherited Adam's sin. Okay, and so they're not actually expiating their sins through her. Rather, what they are doing is they're just creating another sin or producing another sin. And the same is true with taking an animal and sacrificing that. An animal is in different category than a human being. And so an animal cannot take away sin. That's why it says, even though they had those shadows and types in the Old Testament, okay, they had sacrifices of goats and uh, lambs and etc. cetera, um, uh, what do you call it, um, bulls, they had those type of sacrifices, but they could not take away sin. They only pictured the coming of Christ. It says in the book of Hebrews that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. 
They were only anticipatory. They were only typological pictures of the coming of Christ. In Christ, all of these tensions are resolved. And without Christ, none of them are resolved. And because of that, that means that there can be no other path to God except through the cross of Jesus Christ. There cannot be. We can know that, okay? You can debate all day long about, uh, you know, which church is closest to understanding these things, whether it's the Presbyterians or whether it's the Methodists or whether it's, doesn't matter. When it comes down to it, the only thing that matters is the cross of Jesus Christ. They can, you know, have their own uh, uh, theology, theological ideas about those things. But when it comes down to it, if it departs from the scripture, what scripture says about what Jesus has done, then they are not right, okay? And you can get into all the lesser issues, you know, like replacement theology and do you need to be baptized and all that kind of stuff. But when you get to the core things about the nature of God, that Jesus Christ must be God. He must be fully man, okay? There must be a trinity. These are core things that we understand because of this right here, okay? So there you go with that. Yes? Chesed, H-E-S-E-D. Chesed. Okay. Yeah. Where does that fit? Right in the middle? Um, that's loving kindness. Yeah. Chesed is his, uh, some people will say loving kindness. Some people will say, I would put it under love. Well, I, I have it some places I can't find it, you know, that all of these attributes are in that. They, they all fall into that in some way because he's merci- merciful, he's gracious, and those attributes would fall under the word chesed to some extent. If I was to pick just one, I would say love. Okay. But. Uh, it, it does go farther than that. And what we'll have to do is we'll have to get the word chesed and, you know, do a study on it and bring it in here. If you remind me, I can do that this week and we can, but, uh, you know, some, some Bibles will translate it loving kindness. Okay. Anyway, um, chesed is the word. Um, yeah. And we'll find that out and we'll give a better explanation of that. Okay, good. I just need to be reminded of that. Anyway, um, we'll go back. Vincent's word studies. We praise God because of this grace bestowed upon us. And in this, we understand that we praise him because he is gracious in his very being. He is merciful in his very being. Paul right now is talking about the grace of God. Okay. At other times, he'll talk about God who is rich in mercy. Okay. Paul will talk about all of these different attributes at one. You'll hear him talk about truth and love and holiness and all these different things. God, you know, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so these things are things that exist. They are in God. And what we have to do is figure out how they apply to us. And the way we do that is by studying the cross of Jesus Christ, meditating on it, thinking on what God did in his son as he hung there on the cross dying for our our sins, okay? Calling Christ the beloved shows the inseparable connection between the two. The love found in this father-son relationship is infinite. Therefore, in our uniting with Christ, the love relationship between God and us places us in that same infinite love, okay? It doesn't matter. I'm telling you right now, it doesn't matter if people believe that you can lose your salvation or not. That is irrelevant. What the Bible teaches is what matters, and the Bible teaches that we are now in an infinite love relationship with God, okay? Once again, 2 Corinthians 5.19. I was listening to uh, the ending of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, the beginning of it today, and I got down to 2 Corinthians 5.19, and I was just so excited just driving over here by the Thai restaurant because I had Thai food today for lunch. Anyway, um, uh, they uh, I, I got to that, and I'm just, I'm so excited to have that verse, that God is in Christ, reconciling us to himself, not imputing man's transgressions against them. We are in Christ. 
We are no longer being imputed sin. God has done it this way because any other way, we would be lost 10 seconds after we were saved. But he has done it in Christ, and we are a part of this. There is no longer the tension between us and God. If there is something wrong with us in God, that will be judged by God at the Bema seat of Christ, but it will not take us away from this resolved tension. I wish people could get that, but it, it just seems like I'm, once again, cognitive dissonance. It doesn't matter what you show them from scripture that will refute what they're saying. If they don't want to believe it, I believe in a mid-trib rapture, you will never change their mind. They are going to have to decide, I'm going to do my own study and I am going to figure this out. You're not going to change them otherwise. This is what people believe, okay? So, um, uh, let's see here. Yes, our Redeemer, our Savior, and our Mediator to God the Father, okay? Uh, Christ, I should read that. Christ becomes our Redeemer. He becomes our Savior, and he becomes our Mediator to God the Father. He is all of those things to us. As he gave up his Son for our salvation, not sparing him, then how great a love God must have for us, the object of his affection. Say that again, pay attention. As God gave up his son for our salvation, does anybody disagree that that happened? He gave up his son for our salvation, then how great a love God must have for us, the objects of his affection. And I hate to say it, somebody's going to be upset when I say it, but it applies to Adolf Hitler as much as it applies to Charlie Garrett. Okay, Adolf Hitler missed the call and he did not receive the gift, but his love does not change. We human beings are the object of God's affections, regardless of who we are. Okay, some of the worst sinners that ever lived have become preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were in the same boat five minutes before as Adolf Hitler was. We may not like to hear that, but that is the way it is. God loves the work of his hands, but he cannot demonstrate that love towards them as long as the, the uh, tension exists, okay? And it doesn't matter if you've committed one sin or killed five billion people. It doesn't matter. The tension exists. And without the cross of Christ, you will never be reconciled to him. But uh, think of who's the, the worst person that you can think of that became a Christian, apart from me. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of somebody famous that was really a bad guy. I and, heard that uh, Dahmer's. Yeah, Jeffrey Dahmer's. Eating people, storing them in his refrigerator and eating them, right? And he got caught and he spent the rest of his life in jail. He actually got beaten to death in jail. Right? Yeah, but the fact is that it was, and this isn't just one of those, you know, you always hear about after somebody dies. Oh, Michael Jackson, I heard that he received Christ on the day he died. Okay, I've heard that with every famous person that ever lives because we don't want to accept that my favorite idol is dead and he's gone from forever. Forget that. Jeffrey Dahmers was a Christian before he was killed. Okay, he gave his testimony before he was killed. This guy was a bad guy. He did terrible things and he is forgiven in Christ. Okay. That's just the way it is. So uh, we just have to remember that, and we have to not put ourselves on the bell curve because there is no bell curve in God. There's no grading, gradation of sin. Sin is sin. One sin, according to James, breaks the whole law. So it doesn't matter if you've committed uh, a lie or if you've murdered a person. It doesn't make any difference. That one sin has violated the entire relationship between you and God. And that's the premise that is he's drawing out for us right here. We'll read it again before I go on. Um, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us, Jeffrey Dahmer, Charlie Garrett, Susan, it doesn't matter who, he made us 
beloved accepted in the beloved. It, became, it came about because he loves us. He loves us enough to send Christ into the world to die for us. Yeah, John 3.16. That's right. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's exactly right. Okay? So, um, this, us being the objects of his affection, this is the true demonstration of the glory of his grace. It is the reason why our praises are directed towards him. We have been made acceptable in the beloved. And thus our praise of what the beloved has done for us are praises for what the Father has done in him for us. It all goes back to Jesus Christ. Uh, this past week, I'm not going to tell you now because I typed this week the Resurrection Day sermon. I forgot that it was coming so close and I always like to type things 10 weeks in advance. But this past Monday, I typed that. And I always like it when I do that because I get like a half a day off. It's great. Because I just sit there and type him, you know, instead of studying and going through the passage. And this week, it was brutal. It was a long, hard day, okay? But I always need an introduction, and I got an introduction. Somebody that we all know, and might be somebody in this church, it might be somebody that attends on Sunday, it might be, doesn't matter. Somebody emailed me with a question about the Bible. And he had said that I've been listening to pastors preach on this particular passage, and I've been listening to songs on this particular passage, and I want to know what you think. This person was in a real dilemma because every one of them was saying this passage pertains to us. It's about us. And he knew that wasn't right, but he didn't know how to resolve it. So I sent him, I, I, here's what happened. Hedico knows we were having lamb chops on Sunday night. It was after church, I'm finally done with everything. It's late, and uh, I get it. Yeah, hey, listen, I'd been working since 3.30 that morning, okay? It was late, and I had been working very hard all day, church, and then this. So I, uh, I, I'm sitting there, and this person emails me, and I thought, what am I going to do? And I have lamb chops all over my finger, so I just, I really very carefully with one finger typed out, here is the commentary to that verse. And that's a good thing about having typed a commentary is you just send it to somebody and say, here, we can talk about it later if you still have a question. And I mean, within eight minutes, I got an email back. You'll hear it in the sermon. I, I used that as the introduction for the sermon because it fit perfectly with what we're talking about on Easter. Anyway, so uh, uh, the point of that is, is that everything, everything comes back to this right here. It is not me-centered. It is Christ-centered, and then we are the recipients of that blessing. If you remember that, any passage that you think that doesn't sound right when a preacher preaches on it, it's because he probably made it me-centered instead of Christ-centered. And then from there, you turn it around, you say it's Christ-centered, and we are the recipients of that. It'll all make sense, okay? And that's what we need to understand about here. With mom's face all chewed up when I talked about Adolf Hitler, and she's like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. This has to be a Christ-centered thought, because if it's we-centered, then of course we're going to feel, oh, he doesn't deserve that. Well, guess what? None of us deserved it. Not one of us deserved it, okay? If you understand the love of God that is found in Christ, you will understand what grace means. What? Not completely. You know, we're never going to fully appreciate it, but we will understand at least that God has these attributes. Okay, we'll go on. Um, We've been, I've read this, but I'll read it again. We've been made acceptable in the beloved and thus our praise of what the beloved has done for us are the praises for what the Father has done in him for us. The two 
are inseparably connected, and thus the praises are also inseparably connected. This is revealed in the words of John chapter 17. I'll read this to you, and we'll see. This is during Jesus' prayer. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. This also explains why Jesus made this claim. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's John 5.23. There can be no honor of the Father if the Son is not honored. The grace of God shown in the beloved means that the praise of God either honors both or it honors neither. And that's why John Hagee is wrong in his dual covenant theology, saying that Jews are saved apart from Jesus Christ. They are saved through adherence to the law of Moses, which is also the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. If you need that for a Catholic person, let me know and I'll find it. It's in their, their thing that they've, it's hundreds of pages long, but they do say that the Muslims are saved through the Abrahamic faith and Jews are saved through the Abrahamic faith that they possess as well, meaning through the law of Moses. And so that is untrue. That is absolutely heresy. And it's revealed right here is that you cannot honor the son, the father, if you do not honor the son. And the father is not honored without honoring Jesus Christ. It is not going to happen. These people are, they're bad people, okay? I'm not talking about their moral character. I'm talking about their doctrine. They are bad people to teach that because they are limiting people to a life apart from Jesus Christ because they are not going to evangelize them because they say it's okay. They can get to heaven another way. That is untrue, okay? Life application. Take time today to sing to the praise of God's glorious grace. And that is the song right there, Michael W. Smith, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's just such a great song. Anyway, and I know I was thinking of that when I typed that. I know I was. Yes. I'll get that. Um, but anyhow, the, um, uh, it's not a bell curve. It's a binary code. Or... Yeah, that's a good, a good way of looking at it. It's a binary code. It's either on or it's off. And if it's on, it will never be turned off again. Exactly. Okay? It's stuck in the on position for all of it. I shouldn't say stuck because it is held fast in the the on position for all eternity after that binary code it's on or that's good that's i like that i'm gonna have to use that if i don't use it i'll forget it yes the other thing too um exodus passage there i, I know i said sir on that. that jesus yeah it, well, it was a great sermon too yeah. it was a great I sermon yeah I, i'm not talking about my part of it my presentation i'm just saying that the passage itself was great okay but you know jesus walking by uh, well, you, you have to uh, go back and watch it to understand. Uh, God does not have parts, okay? Right. So it's the Lord. If God has a back, he has a face, okay? But you cannot see God and live. That doesn't mean what he's talking about there. I, 
John says uh, in his one of his epistles, I don't remember which one it is, that no man has seen God. Okay, that's because God cannot be seen, and we will never see him. God does not have parts. So when we see something about God that presents a figure, okay, that is Jesus. That okay, uh, but there's more to it than that because you have to understand that he is. Uh, uh, you've got Christ. Okay. And then he, yes, he is the same Christ that is in the Old Testament. Okay. I don't like the term pre-incarnate Christ because that means that he was incarnate before he was incarnate. And that is a logical contradiction. It is the same Christ that was crucified on the cross that walked up to Abraham. Okay. He is the master of time and space. He is the one that is able to do things that we cannot comprehend. When he came to the parents of Samson and he said, make an offering and I'll accept that. And then he went up and that was Jesus. Okay. There's no doubt about it. And sometimes you'll get a Bible translation, uh, audio Bible that will actually get that right. And they will use the same voice for Jesus in the New Testament with those passages in the Old Testament. I always like that because I know that they understand this is Jesus. Okay. It is not a pre-incarnate Christ. I use the term eternal Christ because he is unchanging. Uh, what is that? Uh, Hebrews 13, uh, Jesus Christ. The, no, no. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. 13, 8, isn't it? Okay. Somewhere right in there. Okay. Anyway, he's, he is the eternal Christ. Okay. Anyway, and we could talk about that more later, but I have to have my, my mind geared to it more appropriately. But, but yes, in that passage, he is the rock. He is the cleft of the rock. He is the hand. He is everything. So it's more than just, it, it's typology and symbolism. It's like when um, Moses and Aaron and Hur were up on the, uh, the top of the hill and they were holding up the staff and he sat on a rock. Everything about that pointed to Christ. Everything pointed to Christ, okay? Uh, you get to the end of the book of uh, Leviticus, the last, the last passage, the last verse, and you get to the last verse of the book of Numbers and it does the same thing. Every single word is looking to Christ. Everything. So uh, there's more to it than just saying, yes, that's Jesus. And, you know, you have to yeah, go back and right. watch. But it yes. Okay. The what? 13.8. Did I say that? Yes, oh, did. good. Okay. I, I, I was looking for confirmation and I wasn't getting it. But thank you. Thank you. I, I just don't want to give the wrong verse. But yes, 13.8. Okay. Um, yes, I've said that. 1.7. We're in 1.7. In him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness of sin. Oh, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? Just reading the words is unbelievable. In him we have redemption. It's almost identical. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I think it's identical to what you just said. Okay, God's grace. Okay, okay, this one says his, yours says God's. Okay, 1-7. In him means Christ, who is the beloved of the previous verse. It is through God's beloved Son that we have redemption through his blood. That's Paul's words. In the Greek, there is an article before the word redemption. It states the redemption. We have the redemption through his blood. And thus it sets the thought apart as the great act of redemption to which any other act, such as the redemption of Israel from Egypt, was only a type and a shadow. In other words, the promised Redeemer of Genesis 3.15 is realized in Christ. From that proclamation, every idea of redemption which is found in Scripture pointed to what Christ would do for us. This true redemption was realized 
as Paul says, through his blood. We now stand justified and free from sin's penalty through the redemption that came by his work and which culminated in the shedding of his blood, meaning his death on the cross. If we are justified, we are justified. It's done. If we have received redemption, it is done. Israel did not get unredeemed. Okay, individuals were cast out, but the nation has never been unredeemed as a nation. They are God's people. Okay, Israel the nation, not the individual. Israel the nation is a template for the believer in Christ. God will never forsake the covenant that he made with Israel. He made it. Their faithlessness in no way negates his faithfulness. And that is the same with us in Christ. It doesn't matter if we were unfaithful today or if we're going to be unfaithful tomorrow or if we're going to be unfaithful for the rest of our lives. That does not matter. He will never be unfaithful to us. It does matter in our rewards and losses. I'm talking about our position in Christ. We are in Christ. And to say otherwise is to say that that cross has no meaning at all. It's up to our deeds and it's up to our constancy and not his. Okay. The term redemption comes from a root word which indicates the price paid to redeem a person, such as a prisoner from war. It signifies liberty from captivity, bondage, or imprisonment. We were all prisoners, weren't we? Every single one of us were prisoners to sin. Jesus says as much in the book of John. We are born into sin, and we are prisoners of sin, held in bondage by its power and kept by the master of sin, the devil. If you don't believe that, that you were once in the devil, go read 1 John 3, 8, okay? The purpose that the Son of Man was manifested was to destroy the works of the devil. That means in each one of us. The devil had control over us. He possessed us. We were his. Christ redeemed us from that. Okay? This is confirmed by the devil's words to Jesus in Luke chapter 4, where he stated, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. The devil has the authority over the world. Sin is a firm bond, and the devil is a cruel taskmaster. However, Jesus' ministry was to destroy this power. John notes this as the, oh, here it is, the principal reason for his coming. 1 John 3, 8, he who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's the preeminent reason. Jesus came and he gave us all kinds of reasons why he came. I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I have come for this reason. I have come for that reason. This is every other one of those reasons is tied into this right here. You can't have abundant life if you belong to the devil. All of those other reasons that Christ gave are summed up in the fact that he came to redeem us from the authority of the devil over us. Okay. Jesus prevailed where Adam failed. What the devil gained through Adam's disobedience, Jesus regained through his obedience. What God asks is that we simply believe this message, receive his gift, and place our trust in what Jesus has done for us. This, this is the redemption through his blood. This is the marvel of what God has done for us. In him, there is absolute victory and complete reconciliation with the Father. If you're in the devil and he redeems you from the power of the devil, you're redeemed. That's it. 
you're you're not going you can't be imputed sin again 2 corinthians 5 19 sin gets the devil's control over us right Does anybody disagree with that because that's how it happened in genesis narrative if we are no longer imputed sin then the devil can no longer get control over us we are forever in christ we will never be in the devil again you cannot lose your salvation now, I'm not, I know you all believe this, and I know you all accept it, and you wonder why I keep saying it all the time, but somebody will watch this video that has never watched it before, and they're going to say, well, I know I can lose my salvation, and you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot do it. Okay? They've lost their joy. That's exactly, if you believe that you can lose your salvation, you won't, but you will lose your joy in the process because you're forever going to be striving to earn God's favor when he's already graciously given it to you on the cross of Calvary. Okay, that's the way that is. Now we talked about the uh, redemption at the Passover, the redemption from of Israel from Egypt, and uh, I just so you know, uh, you can look for it in six days. Apparently, Sergio and Rhoda went down to Jericho today with a famous singer in Israel, uh, Shiloh Ben Hod, and they did a video, a Passover video. So that's going to come out in six days. I can't wait to see it. But just so you know, be ready for that. I, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I might not have authority, and everybody online is going to have to close your ears. But anyway, I'm so excited because, um, you know, he sent me a couple short little clips of them filming it, and it looked like a good time. So there you go. Uh, the bondage, the redemption from Egypt. All right, um, let's see here. As a means of highlighting this thought, Paul next says that in him, meaning Christ, we also have forgiveness of sins. This is a complementary thought to the previous clause. The word for forgiveness signifies the complete release of someone from an obligation or debt, okay? If you remember what Jesus said on the cross, he said, it is finished. Tetelestai, the word is teleo, it means paid in full, okay? The idea is that when you went and you would buy something on credit or whatever, you know, in the old Greek uh, uh, sphere of things, you'd go and you, just like we do now, we'd go maybe to a pawn shop or we'd go to a store and we'd say, I'm putting money on this this week, and they'd give you a receipt for it. And you'd take your receipt every week, and you'd hand it to them. They'd put another mark on there. And when it was finally paid off, it would be stamped, Teleo, Tetelestai, it is finished, okay? And then you'd walk out, and that would be yours, and you no longer owed anybody on that thing. This is what happened in Christ. Sin's penalty is ended through the work of Christ for all who believe. Sin's penalty is ended. Okay, there's no more penalty. And as I keep saying, said it three times today, 2 Corinthians 5.19, is that what it is? One, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is not imputing sin to us. So your penalty for sin has been paid. You're not getting any more sin imputed to you. It's done. Okay, it is finished. Charles Ellicott notes that the first clause, redemption through his blood, looks at the work of atonement from God's perspective while the forgiveness of sins looks at it from our side. In this, he says, they are both being wrought by him who is the Son of God and Son of Man at once. Together, they represent the whole truth. Wonderful. Everything is reconciled. Right here, there it is. What I was showing you here, that's exactly what he is talking about right here. All of this tension, all of this tension, and God is doing one thing in this direction. He's doing another thing in this direction for us. God down through Christ, us up through Christ, and it meets in the middle, and all of the tension is resolved. 
that in Ellicott says as much right there. Very well said. Joseph Benson adds to the thought. Now, when you read Joseph Benson, I want you to know this, okay? I like him. I cite him. I think I got him in a couple more sermons coming up. At times, you are going to see Joseph Benson's commentary if you go on to biblehub.org where I go to my read my commentaries. And Matthew Poole will be down here. He was older back in, I think, the 1600s. Joseph Benson, I think, was in the 1800s. Anyway, Joseph Benson pretty much plagiarizes Matthew Poole, word for word. I don't know if he's taken Matthew Poole's commentary and if he made notes on top of it or if he just plagiarized it. But when you read it, you'll think, well, I just read that somewhere, word for word. So I just want you to know that if I cite Joseph Benson, it is his words, not from Matthew Poole. If I cite Joseph Benson, but otherwise I will cite Matthew Poole. Okay, I just want you to know that that uh, I don't know what he was doing, so I don't want to accuse him of that, but it looks like he is plagiarizing because he takes that commentary from Matt, but then he doesn't always use it. And that's why I wonder, anyway, we'll go on. Joseph Benson adds to the thought by saying, by price and by power are brought and delivered from the guilt and dominion of sin, the tyranny of Satan, and the final displeasure and wrath of God. That is a nice quote there. That is a wonderful quote. Paul notes that all of this was according to the riches of his grace. This is understood to mean the riches of the grace of God the Father. As noted in Ephesians 1, 6, grace is an attribute of God. Oh, wrong one. That was mercy. Grace is an attribute of God the Father. <clears throat> Let's see here. And is a part of his divine nature. Therefore, the giving of Christ for our redemption and the forgiveness of our sins is, express, is an expression of who God truly is. We can see the infinite grace of God when we look to the cross of Christ. You cannot say that you have received the grace of God if you have not come through Christ. You may have received grace from God, such as raining on your house or, you know, you, uh, you uh, got a great job and et cetera, et cetera. Those are things that happen. God created everything and you're a part of it and that, that secondary grace has come to you. But you cannot say that you have received the grace of God apart from Jesus Christ. It cannot happen. You cannot receive the love of God apart from Jesus Christ. Those things are not going to happen and people need to get their categorical boxes straight before they misunderstand the nature of God, miss Jesus Christ, and then end up having, as you said, a binary. They get the, the zero and not the one or whatever, okay? You're either on one position or you're on the other, and that is it. There are only those two options, okay? So, finally, there is another marvelous verse which points to the ending of the law for all who are in Christ Jesus. Logically, if we have redemption through Christ's blood, meaning his atoning death, and this is complementary in thought to the forgiveness of sins, and as sin comes about through law, then the obvious deduction for us is that we are dead to the law. Its power no longer has mastery over us. Paul explains this exactingly elsewhere in his writings. I said it from 2 Corinthians 5.19. He mentions it at least, I want to say a jillion times, but I don't want to exaggerate, many, many times in the book of Romans. He comes at it from one angle or another. You're not under law. You're, you know, he just, again and again and again, he says these things. But he is only speaking to those who are in Christ. Only. He's not speaking to anybody else, okay? Life application, as you go about your day, remind yourself of what you have received from God in the giving of his son. Truly, 
Ponder this marvelous deed and think on what it signifies for you. There is an eternity, forever, forever and ever and ever, eternity of fellowship with God that lies ahead because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus knew that. I mean, he was in the garden. He said, Father, take this cup from me. And, you know, is he really going to go through with it? Is he? he knew this is a temporary thing. I don't want to go through it, but I'm, I'm going to do it for the people of the world because forever is forever. And he knew that. And so he went through with it. This is the love that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And this is the glory of what Jesus Christ did for us. Okay? 1-8. Oh, wait. Burke's got something. That hand came up. Lamentations 3. You know where I'm going. Oh, yeah. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. Never ceases. It is new morning to morning. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Absolutely. Wonderful. That's a, you know, right in the, right in the book of the most miserable woe, yeah. he says that. He knew, you know, I mean, this is judgment. We deserve it. I don't like it. I'm sad. I, you know, you can just see it all over Jeremiah's writings in there. But he knew that God was faithful even when they were unfaithful. He knew that they would be restored. Everything about him is My new. My neighbor who lived just north of me, He'll say his favorite thing, what's new? <laughs> and then I'll give him this oh, yeah. lamentations, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. It's... God's compassions are new every day. Every you know? day. And it, well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and just keep it up. One of these days, maybe he'll want to know about it. I am... Yeah, yeah. what's new? <laughs> oh, I, When people ask me that, I always say, well, it's like snow, but it's just not as white. What's new? What's now? Yeah, I, I, I just, that's what I've always said. Okay. Anyway. Um, oh, yeah. 1-8. Go ahead. Then he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Okay. Completely different. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This verse is a transition between the thought of the preceding verse, which noted the riches of his grace, and that which will explain those riches in the following verses. At this point, Paul is stating that God has made to abound, his words, made to abound these riches, which are to be explained toward us. The Greek word translated as made to abound is one which indicates abundance or surplus. It means to go beyond measure. And thus it gives the idea of overflowing. You got lavish. Lavish. That's a wonderful word. Lavish. He just, he just heaps it on. Or do you remember a couple sermons ago? I think I, maybe I, Type the sermon, and I haven't done. No, it was we've given the sermon is when the the uh, person is freed from his seven years of bondage. It said necklace him. Do you remember that? It was just it had to have been within the past six or seven sermons. And necklace him. In other words, just heap it on him so it's like a giant yeah, necklace yeah. of all the the blessings that because he served you, he's been worth twice twice as much to you as a uh, hired hand. Okay, and so when he goes, don't let him go out empty-handed. Just necklace him is the word. Same idea here, just overflowing abundance. Okay, or when uh, like our middle cup on the uh, communion every Sunday, we have the communion the middle one. We always fill, and I have it overflowing. It's just running all over the rest of it because I want that's the Jesus cup. Okay, it's overflowing, and then we have one other that I only fill about halfway, and that's uh. Uh, Ellen Magnuson's cup. I always remember her because of that, because she shook really badly. And so 
she would say, don't fill it up all the way. And so even then you had to help her with it. But, you know, it was, so I got two cups in there. One is the Jesus and we got the, that Miss Magnuson cup because she was such a, such a precious person. Wow. Anyway. Um, oh boy. Okay. Um, Yes, overflowing abundance. Uh, God towards, uh, go beyond measure, overflowing. The riches of God toward us, because of the person and work of Christ, simply overflow. And this superabundance, which comes to us, is in all wisdom and prudence. Wisdom is the excellent use of knowledge, okay? The beginning, of, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom okay it's the beginning of wisdom you can be the smartest guy in the world and have no wisdom at all okay and i just typed a sermon uh just just recently on solomon to show where his deficiencies lie and you'll hear about that i think it'd be in 10 weeks or nine weeks because it would have been two weeks ago i typed it and um uh, he was the wisest man that ever lived but he failed to apply his wisdom at times okay uh, 700 wives, 300 concubines. Yeah. Yeah, I, absolutely. Anyway, we'll talk about that in that particular sermon. So, uh, wisdom is the excellent use of knowledge. You can have a person that's actually not really intelligent, have a lot of wisdom. Uh, now I don't know how intelligent he was, so I'm not saying the opposite, but I knew a guy named Glenn Boron. I worked with him at the uh, wastewater plant and he was a mechanic. He was just a mechanic, okay? Yeah, you know, he's, he's just a guy over there. This guy, if you gave him a transmission, and you, anybody know how many parts are in a transmission? There are thousands. There, there, there are thousands. And he would just take the thing apart. they say, this thing doesn't work, and he would have parts everywhere. And he would put it back together. He'd find out what was wrong with it, and that thing would work. And he'd never worked on a transmission in his life. He could apply wisdom. And he had no knowledge. He didn't know anything about it. He never. We had a problem one time with a chlorine uh, regulator at the the crossing over to Siesta Key. It goes under the bay and Old Stickney Point Bridge. You know where uh, Chris Wheeler Park is. That's where the crossing is, and we have to feed chlorine into it. Okay, you got to keep chlorine up. And there was a problem, and it wasn't working. And they they called out literally. I'm not kidding. Engineers, they they paid thousands of dollars to have engineers come out and look at these things. They couldn't figure out what it was. All the guys that worked on the chlorine pumps that sold them, distributed them, they would come at, they, nobody could figure out what this was. Glenn Boron, one day he was out there and he says, we always got these guys out here. And he says, well, there's a problem with this thing. Nobody's been able to figure it out. Nobody. He walked in there, he looked at it and he had an answer this quickly. And the general manager didn't want to believe him or the, uh, not that the, not the general, another guy. Uh, he didn't want to believe him because, oh, that's not true. And come to find out, he was absolutely, he looked at it less than 20 seconds. That is wisdom. He had no knowledge of that system at all, but he had wisdom in how things work. Okay. That's what this is right here. Think of that when you're thinking of God's relationship with us in Christ. Okay. Wisdom is the excellent use of knowledge or even the lack of it. If you don't have the knowledge, but you can apply yourself. Okay. One can be extremely smart and lack any wisdom. For example, a person may have the knowledge of how to make money, but he may not have the wisdom in the use of his money. We know people that get a lot of money in the lottery, right? Two, two years later, they're in the poorhouse. They have no wisdom, the application of what to do with money. Okay, in lacking wisdom, his intelligence is wasted and he remains penniless at the end of the month. Another person may not have great knowledge, but he may be quite wise. He may make very little, 
But at the end of the month, he has money in the bank because he was wise enough to save along the way. Okay. If you've ever been in the military, you know people like that. You know people that would have a little bit of money and somebody would say, you know, I need $20. I'll pay you $40 tomorrow if you give me $20 today because tomorrow is payday. And you'd make $20 off him. And that guy is out now paying his entire paycheck back to people and he has no money. And the next month he does the same thing again. And then you get people that say, okay, and they are $20 richer the next day, right? That's just the way it is. There are people out there that are like that because they have wisdom with how to handle certain things. And there are people that have all kinds of money and they have no wisdom in it. They say, when I was in the Air Force, and this is years ago, but it's probably still true, you have uh, enlisted and officers. Enlisted goes from E1, which makes about 50 cents a month, up to the chief, uh, chief, uh, what do you call him? Um, uh, chief senior, chief master sergeant. Okay, boy, I can't even remember. Okay, and he probably makes, we'll say, two grand a month. Okay, so this guy makes fifty cents a month. This guy makes two grand a month. And then you start with the officers, and you have the O one, which is a butter bar, and he probably starts out at, we'll say, eighteen hundred dollars a month, and you get up to a four star general, and he probably makes upwards of, uh, we'll say, five thousand dollars a month. Okay, just, I'm just guessing. Okay, which rank in all of those from E1 up to the general, which one had the most financial problems? No, believe it or not, because they're wise enough to have been promoted to general, it's not them. But you won't believe it, it's major. O4 in the officer service has, you'd never know it because it's always the enlisted guys that get busted. The officers always get a pass, but they had the most financial irresponsible uh, record was O fours. I know that because I was in personnel, and so we handled those type of things. But you know, if a, if an airman did something like that, they take away his stripe, which only makes him his life more miserable because he has less money now. O four would never lose a, a you know a, an officer, or whatever. He'd never be demoted to a captain. But they were very irresponsible, and they're making good money. I mean, they're making they're making more than a chief master sergeant who's been in for thirty years. So whatever. Okay. Um, yeah, so uh, where was, oh, they make very little up at the end of the month. Okay, prudence, that's the next word. Prudence is noted by Helps Word Studies as that brand of visceral opinion for which, which pleases the Lord because shaped by God's inworkings of faith, divine persuasion. For example, Christ-enlightened perspective, which has the insight to make intelligent or shrewd Life Applications in the Will of God. Now, that's helps word study, so it's a little bit uh, uh, hard to understand, but it's Christ's enlightened perspective. It is the insight to make intelligent or shrewd life applications in the will of God. Okay, in other words, I know that this is what I should be doing to be in the will of God, and I'm going to apply that to my life. That is prudence. Okay, wisdom and prudence are different, but they have the same ultimate goal, is a person is progressing in Christ with those attributes, okay? Together, the wisdom and prudence, which are indicated here, excuse me, which are indicated here, reflect the wise plan which was laid out concerning man's redemption, meaning wisdom, and the execution of that plan by God in the stream of human history. Prudence. As noted, this wisdom and prudence will be explained in the coming verses. They are the riches of God's grace which had been bestowed upon us. We're the benefactors of those things. Life application. When we are stuck in a rut, whether mental or spiritual, all we need to do is to get into the Bible and read about what God has done for us in the stream of time. 
The plan was there from the very beginning and was methodically being worked out for eons. At the coming of Christ, the realization of what he had been doing came about. It all centered on Christ. Now we are the recipients of that marvelous plan. If we are stuck pondering what Christ did for us, it should unstick us. Turn your thoughts to the cross and all that it signifies. How can we be anything but grateful when we consider the cross of Christ? Yes, we do get stuck. I know we do. We all have difficult times. I don't think we're going to get... We're not going to get another one done. I'm sorry about that. Um, we're going to have to wait till next week to see the application of those two things. But it's we've uh, we'll try it. You want to try it? Let's. We got eight minutes. We're going to give it a shot. One night. Go ahead. And he made known to us mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Okay, this one says which he purposed in himself. Okay, this verse again is a continuation of the previous and ongoing thought. The words have made, having made known, the words having made known are a single participle which explains the words made to abound of the previous verse. That thought in turn explained the riches of his grace of the previous verse. This is more evident when read together. So I'm going to read them both right now. Eight, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Okay? It is the abounding riches of his grace, which he has made known to us. In other words, there is a select portion of humanity to which this has been revealed. It is those who are the called in Christ. Those who have heard the message of what he has done and received it. You can hear the word and you cannot receive it. This is the ones who have heard it, and have received it. This would obviously include any who have heard the message, whether they received it or not, but Paul is speaking to those who have both heard and accepted the word. Okay, What God has made known to us is the mystery of his will. The word mystery carries with it more than what we would think as a mere mystery. That can't be known, something that can't be known. That's what we would say a mystery is. It carries more than that. It does imply that which is unknown, but it also means that which has been made now, which has been now made known by God's revelation. And so this mystery is that which is entirely unknowable except and unless it is revealed by God. That is what a mystery is in the Bible. This is something that may be a mystery as we would consider it today, but it's more than that. It's something that cannot, it cannot be known unless God has revealed it. Okay. God sent Jesus Christ. Before he did that, it could not be known. Okay, that's what a mystery is. It's something that God is doing that cannot be known apart from God showing it to us and then explaining it to us. Okay, and so this mystery is that, oh, I read that. When it is so revealed, it is a mystery made known. Further, concerning such a mystery, Charles Ellicott says that reason can apprehend when revealed that which it cannot discover but seldom or never can it comprehend it perfectly. The words of his will, of his will, that's Paul's words, are actually not explained until the next verse. But they mean that there is a mystery that had yet to be revealed by God, which is now revealed, like the rapture. That was a mystery. Nobody could have ever known that it was coming until Paul told us about it. Until the time it arrived, God had kept the knowledge of it back from man's understanding. 
But in his providence, he is now, meaning in what Paul is writing about, revealed this portion of his will. And this is, as Paul says, according to his good pleasure. God determines to withhold things or God determines to reveal things. Those are things that are up to God. God has sovereignly determined when or even if he will reveal his will to his creatures. We may have a secret that we keep from our loved ones even until our death, or we may choose to divulge it at a certain time when we believe that they are ready to hear it. Maybe the children of the family need to come to a state of mental maturity before they hear the news which is hidden. Listen, my children are adopted. I didn't tell them until a certain time. And when that time had come, I revealed it to them. But before that, they had no idea what adopted meant. Okay, that's kind of what we're talking about. And the same is true with God's mysteries. These are things which cannot be known unless he reveals them to us. The timing of their being revealed is solely up to him. Behind the timing is the purpose for the hiding of the thing. Therefore, being infinitely wise, God knew in advance what he would conceal and when he would reveal it. The revealing of such mysteries are those, as Paul says, which he purposed in himself. For this reason, we can find no fault in God for the actions he takes. Being angry at God over things which belong to him alone makes no sense at all. He has a right to withhold or reveal his will in his good timing. The words of this verse go along well with the words of Romans 11.34. Let me take you there. We're almost done. 11.34 says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? God has chosen our time, our place, and our position in history for his reasons. When we consider where we are now, we can be grateful in many ways for it. Despite the woes of the world in which we live, we have a great and glorious benefit of our current position. Jesus explained it to those around him in Matthew chapter 11. Here's what he said. Matthew 11, verse 11, he said, I'm still in 12, let me get back to 11. And assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John was chosen to live at a specific time in history and was considered very great in that particular dispensation of time. And yet those who followed after him would have a revealing of the mysteries that he was not privy to. In this, they hold a position even greater than he did. Such is the wisdom of God. Life application, in the world today, we are seeing the fulfillment of Bible prophecy even right before our eyes. What a blessed time to live. We have confirmation of the words written so long ago, which can help us in our times of weakness, where faith is lacking. And certainly this is needed as the world spirals down all around us. Be thankful for the sure evidence that we possess, which come right out of God's marvelous word. Sorry, I had to rush through that last one a little bit, but I hope everybody got all the, the meat out of it. Uh, it's just on time. we got to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to meet here and to uh, be in your presence. And we thank you that uh, uh, we know that you hear our prayers. We know that they're effective. Even if they don't realize in the way that we pray for them, we know that they're effective in meeting your purposes in Christ. And that's what matters. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord. And we praise you in his name. Amen.